0: From Orte Muse, this is States of Mind. Donald, you're not gonna be able to insult your way to the presidency.
1: Little Buddha touch, Slippy Joe and Crazy Bernie. Mini Mike. I hit Pocahontas way too early.
0: We have a president who is
2: not only a pathological liar. We have a criminal living in the White House.
3: A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians.
1: Let's just pick somebody, please, and let's start this thing. Let's start it. Pick somebody.
4: Your U.S. Election 2020 podcast
0: with Brian O'Donovan in Washington
4: and Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today, every decision on trade, on taxes will be made to benefit American workers and American families. Another devastating number, 30 million people out of work.
3: For all the controversy that is Donald Trump, thankfully he does come from a business background because he does understand the worries, the the restraints that we're all under.
4: Brian, can we talk about the iguana?
0: Yes. So this was at a protest in Annapolis, Maryland on Friday that I covered with my cameraman Murray Of course, these protests have been popping up all over the US in recent weeks, calling for lockdown measures to be lifted. This one was held in the state capital of Maryland, which is Annapolis, and they gathered outside the state capitol building, carrying their placards, their flags, waving their banners, many of them Trump supporters with Trump hats, Trump flags, Trump banners. And yes, one man brought an iguana. And Hmm. I think he said her name was Philomena, and he cradled her in his arms as they watched the protest And then on they went. But it was very interesting to attend one of these protests. I had been covering them from afar for some time. It was important to get to one, to meet the people, to listen to why they feel it's necessary to reopen the country quicker than it would have been anyway. It should be said that the state of Maryland actually has entered, similar to Ireland this week, that first phase of beginning the opening process. But the protesters I spoke to simply said it wasn't happening fast enough.
4: And as they say, it's the economy, stupid. It's always the economy. It's revolving heavily around this pandemic as governments around the world weigh up what to do next, especially in the United States. Let's do a very quick refresher today just to set the scene of the American economy before we go deeper into this because it's so important. The US is the world's largest economy. GDP, gross domestic product, the total output of goods and services in a given year is a massive part of that. Everything the economy produces is measured by that. And when it turns negative, the economy enters a recession. At the end of 2019, GDP was around 2.3%, so healthy. But since this pandemic, it has contracted by 4.8% in the first couple of months of 2020. And predictions continue to be dark.
0: Yeah, very bleak outlook, certainly for the coming months. And when you look at the structure of the US economy... Private businesses, they're the backbone, they're the driving force, they produce most of the goods and services, and that ownership comes from this American belief of freedom and this attitude that I've very much seen here in my time living here of if you get up early in the morning and you work hard, you will make it. It's this American dream, it's this capitalism, it's this drive to do your personal best and to work hard. Problem in this country is that everything is so expensive, particularly when you look at things like education and healthcare. So if you are poor, or if you get sick, the social supports aren't there in that same way that we would see in Europe. It should be said during this pandemic, they have improved social supports, they have improved unemployment payments for people. But in general, the message in America is, if you are willing to work hard, you can make it all the way. But if you're poor, and if you're in trouble, it's very, very difficult to get out of that trap. And the average American or consumer is the backbone to the American economy. They spend big here. Two-thirds of the nation's 21.5 trillion dollar economy comes from personal consumption expenditure. And what happens when you have lockdowns, when you have restrictions, when businesses are closed? Spending ceases to exist.
4: In addition to this as well, in 2019, there were around 156 million people employed across the US. Since the pandemic, 36 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits for the first time. That $21.5 trillion economy ain't looking so good. The backbone has started to fracture and measures need to be taken to get people spending again.
0: And when you look at those unemployment figures, you're going back to the Great Depression of the 1930s to find something comparable. But what is not comparable is the speed. You have the scale of the losses and the speed at which it's happening. It's absolutely unprecedented. And it has even the best economic minds in the world scratching their heads about where to go next.
4: To rewind only just a little bit first, two very different times. At the beginning of Donald Trump's first term, he set out an America first economic strategy in his inaugural address.
0: Every decision on trade, on taxes, on
4: immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American family. Economists dispute how much credit presidents can take for a booming or sagging economy under their watch. But Donald Trump likes to see the economy as his. And the numbers are there, Brian, to prove he kept the economy on a steady road since he took office, even though it wasn't the greatest in history, as he has claimed.
2: So the economy is doing very well by every measure. We're having probably the greatest economy that we've had anywhere, anytime in the history of our country.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned there about taking credit, and you have to be very careful. Donald Trump frequently last year would tweet something like, the stock market's booming again, you're welcome. Unemployment at a record low, you're welcome. The problem with that, Jackie, is if you take credit for the gains, you have to take blame for the losses. And most politicians in most countries are very slow to jump on the bandwagon of, the stock market's booming, thanks to me. Mm -hmm. Unemployment is low, thanks to me because when the reverse happens, you have to take the blame. Donald Trump does not. Donald Trump then plays the blame game, and if the stock market starts to falter, oh, it's the Federal Reserve for not cutting interest rates early enough. Now it's the virus's fault, which by default is China's fault. There's always a blame game, there's always the fall guy, and it's not him. But yes, you made reference there to his claims of historical strength, that we're a greatest economy ever. And look, Let's give him credit where credit is due. The economy was doing fantastically well in America. There was a streak of growth that hadn't been seen for some time. But if we go back to that number we spoke about at the start, GDP, gross domestic product, many of the gross domestic product growth figures that Donald Trump has hit have been hit in the past. They were hit during the Obama administration. They were hit way back during the Reagan administration. And sticking with Barack Obama, many Democrats would certainly say, yes, Donald Trump was touting this booming economy, but it was a boom that started under Obama's watch.
4: With Donald Trump in the mind that he was running the very best, the best economy that was a sales pitch into this re-election campaign. Vote for me and I'll keep this show on the road and keep America great. But, and there was a big old but here, COVID-19. This
1: is a CBS News special report. The coronavirus is continuing to hurt the US economy.
3: 5.24 million people filing for unemployment benefits. Another
4: devastating number, 30 million people out of work. Now he's breaking records he doesn't want to mention. US unemployment surged to a post-war high of 14.7% in April. And as we mentioned, more than 36 million Americans filing for unemployment benefits since the pandemic first spread.
0: You know, again, to go on Donald Trump's side here, this is not his fault. Mm -hmm. And if you can imagine, Jackie, within the West Wing, within the Trump campaign, There must be heads and hands every day when they see these figures. So we all remember back in 2016, it was make America great again. Up until the start of this year, it was keep America great. The inference being he had done it, he had made it great. Now we need to keep it great. In recent days, he's spoken about transition to greatness. He said, this is my new slogan, transition to greatness. We're going to transition from this awful period that we're in now, and it's going to be fantastic. The problem for Donald Trump is timing. He keeps talking about how the third quarter of the year, which is only a couple of months away, will be the rebound. The fourth quarter will be even stronger, and next year, to use Donald Trump's term, will be tremendous. Now, that, if it plays out, will be great for everybody, but it will be particularly great for him because a third quarter rebound is right around the time of November's election. It'll give him that bounce. It'll give him that boost. But many economists are sceptical, Jackie, that things will have recovered by the third quarter of the year.
4: Go to an insider's perspective on this, Brian. Someone who can direct us to the heart of Donald Trump's economic policy. Casey Mulligan, professor at the University of Chicago, who served as chief economist for Donald Trump's Council of Economic Advisors from 2018 to 2019, joins us now. Casey, from the corner of the Oval Office, do you think Donald Trump has made America great again and that pre-COVID-19, it was the greatest economy in US history, like the president has claimed?
2: I I would break it into a couple of pieces. There's the tax change that happened early. And I think that was something that was needed more to kind of get back to the old days rather than surpass the old days. Um, We were in a position, as the Irish know better, where we were taxing businesses a lot more than the rest of the world was, and a lot of activity was leaving our country. And he really brought our taxes into line with the rest of the world. So that was kind of needed just to make up for lost ground. And the regulatory area, I think is the area where he's really surpassed many, many presidents before. Take Ronald Reagan, who is known as a deregulator. It's, it's clear that President Trump Um, was able to deregulate a lot more than Ronald Reagan. Prescription drugs is is one of his favorites, where prior administrations had allowed foreign companies to monopolize the sale of generic drugs. Um, It should be sold by many companies, but the system had been rigged so that only one company was often selling those drugs. Our people were way overpaying for generic products, which is unbelievable, and he rolled that out. And there's at least... A dozen examples of that magnitude that it gave our consumers more choice, more affordable options. And that's how a big reason how we got to the lowest unemployment rate in my lifetime.
4: There, There is an argument there, though, that, you know, Trump inherited a strong, great economy from Barack Obama and has done very little to alter its course. Job growth under Donald Trump was roughly equal to Barack Obama's and sometimes even less.
2: Well, Barack Obama started with jobs very, very low, so jobs were going to come back no matter what anybody did. And he got some job growth over a long period of time. It took eight years. He should have done that job growth in two years instead of eight. And he did that in eight years. But by the end of the Obama administration, all the experts, including those in the Obama administration, said, this is it. We are at the peak of the business cycle. You can't go further than this. And we beat the Obama administration's projections by a long, long way. Um, And it is kind of interesting that the experts, seven out of eight Obama years, they thought the economy is going to do better than it actually did. And then all three of the Trump years, it was the opposite, that the Trump economy outperformed the expectations of the experts
0: three years in a row.
2: And that's because I didn't appreciate some of the things we just talked about.
0: In terms of the outlook post-COVID-19, and hopefully we are all keeping our fingers crossed that this pandemic does start to go away and ease over the coming weeks and months, Donald Trump very much touting a third quarter rebound, a very strong fourth quarter, and then a very strong 2021. Do you think he's being overly optimistic? Will the economy start to rebound, do you think, by the third quarter?
2: You know, I, I know from experience that the federal government can get in the way of recovery. You know, it would be fun to sit here and say that only Democrats make those kind of mistakes, but it's not true. I mean, this can be a bipartisan affair. And so I'm concerned that our federal government will get in the way of this recovery. They already have when it comes to Q2. Um, We are in a situation now where because of the federal government, over half of the workforce can actually make more money by not working. Um, That's not a path to recovery that is not going to work. Now, I'd like to be optimistic and say that mistake will expire as scheduled, but that's not been the historical pattern. When these sort of mistakes have been made, they've been doubled and tripled down on. And, you know, the the Trump people are aware of this problem, for sure, but for good reason. The president in our country is not a dictator. He has to um, get the other politicians in Congress, for example, to... Uh, work work with them, and they may insist on continuing these unemployment benefits um, into the third and fourth quarter, and then we're not going to have the kind of recovery. In that case, we won't have the kind of recovery that he's talking about.
4: As someone who has worked with the president, where do you think his mind is at now? If history is any guide, an incumbent president isn't going to have a great shot at re-election if the economy tips into a recession under their
2: watch. Well, I mean, you asked two questions. One about the kind of historical pattern between the economy and re election. Then you asked about the specific president, who's a very unusual person. hes I have a book coming out, um, but it, it's about a book about a populist president, and we have a populist president. So his mindset is about where his power drives, which is the people, and to a much greater degree than previous presidents. Previous presidents had supporters within you know, the Washington established folks, you know, the, the interest groups around Washington, like previous presidents. That's not true. The town of Washington is not a fan of President Trump, and he knows, we saw this in the impeachment, I mean, he knows that his power comes from the people outside of Washington. Um, that's why he's continued the rallies. You know, every time I was in a meeting with him, he was talking about what those people wanted, what those people expected of him, you know, what he promised in the campaign, whether it be, Repealing uh, you know, the problematic parts of Obamacare or building the border wall—he is always thinking about what do the people want from me, and that—that's his mindset. You know, does that—is that, that going to be enough? Having that unusual mindset to overcome uh, running an election during a recession—if we are in a recession and still in November, you know—that—that's harder to say. That makes this all quite interesting, doesn't it?
4: Let's cross over the barbed wire to the other side. Jay Shamba. Hi, Jay. It's Jackie Fox here in Dublin. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. Listen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My colleague Brian O'Donovan is here as well. You should be able to hear him okay.
0: All right, Jay. We'll kick off then, if that's Okay. We're joined now in the line by Jay Shamba, an economics professor at George Washington University and a former member of President Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. Jay, thank you for joining us. Jay, a little earlier we were discussing Donald Trump's repeated boasts and claims that I fixed the US economy and the booming US economy is thanks to me. But of course, most people from the Obama administration will say, actually, that growth began under Barack Obama's watch. What's your take on Donald Trump's claims that he was the one responsible for this booming U.S. economy that we've seen?
1: What we've seen in the U.S. economy over the last decade, until the last couple months, was a fairly straight line recovery. Um, it was growing out of a pretty terrible recession, the worst one we'd seen in quite a while before the last couple months, um, and the labor markets were steadily improving and. Wage growth had started to pick up around 2015 and things like that. And so I, I would say it's hard to say there was a big shift. There were certainly some policy shifts, both on trade policy and tax policy that rearranged some things. But I would say broadly, the macro economy was kind of trucking along. The, the one thing I would say that did change is um, that Congress allowed more spending under the Trump administration and allowed larger deficits and, and big tax cuts. And that probably did goose the economy a little bit. Um, But it was not a real shift in trajectory uh, beyond what we were already seeing.
0: Come mid-March, into April, into May, the world has changed and the US has changed and the US economy has changed. It has fallen off a cliff. I suppose before we go into the the details of what COVID-19 has meant for the US economy, the broader issue of a president like Donald Trump taking the credit for the booming economy, is there a risk in that for politicians? That when you take the credit for the boom, you have to take the blame for the crash.
1: Well, I think there's, there's a danger in, in trying to cherry pick any data point. Um, when, when I was at the Council of Economic Advisors, one of our jobs was when new data was released, we would kind of put out a statement about that data, what did it look like from our perspective. And I think the last paragraph of that kind of thing we would put out every time was the same, every time. And it would say, of course, you shouldn't read too much into any one data point. Things can change data get revised. It's very important to fit this into an overall picture. And so we, we tried to not overplay any one data release because we knew, frankly, that a data release could come out a week later that looked fairly different. Um, so I would say that, yes, if you try to trumpet any one particular line of data too much, you then do risk and of the, the public relations aspect of seeing it swing the other way on you.
4: If we turn to Joe Biden for a moment, Jay, this pandemic is forcing him to redraw his own campaign plans. He set out to be a candidate to return things to what they once were before Donald Trump took office. Now he's going to have to have a campaign more focused on the economy Are there political scars there, though, for when Joe Biden was vice president and being involved in that administration? You know, it's something that you have an insight to. Yes, the economy improved under President Obama's tenure, but people clearly didn't feel it. What needs to change this time around to make sure that people on the ground feel the difference?
1: Well, I guess I would say, I think certainly many people felt that. I think when you take the unemployment rate from 10% to 5%, that that means a lot to people. And I would say, towards the end of the obama administration really starting in 2014 or 15 you did start to see wage growth pick up but i think there was a real realization within the administration that just because a lot of the headline numbers look good that doesn't mean it's reaching everyone and so i think that will likely be a big piece of where joe biden goes i think it's what you've already seen him talk about is both the people and places that feel like they've been forgotten by the economy and trying to do more for them. And I think that will be a big focus coming out of where we are. Um, I think there are also though a lot of lessons from that time that I think um, are important. I think you've seen uh, candidate Biden talking about, and I think others will continue, which is things like under the Obama administration, there was an initial jolt of Uh, fiscal policy to support the economy. But then Congress blocked a lot of subsequent actions that the administration proposed. Uh, The importance of getting some of those things to be keyed off the economic data to make sure that we're not kind of driven by a political calendar, but by economic data driving our response, I think is one thing. And the other thing that I think is really unique for the United States compared to, frankly, most other places around the world, in particular in Europe, is the importance of state and local government spending relative to the national government. And in the United States, the states spend a lot of money and do a lot of the hiring, but they also operate under balanced budget amendments that the federal government doesn't have. And so back in 2010, 11 and 12, we saw the states, their budgets were in a lot of problems because they had kind of just come through a recession. So they wound up actually having to cut back a lot and fire people or not hire people I think we're already seeing the hints of that to come. And that's the kind of thing that could make what could in theory be a shorter recession. It could drag on a lot longer if you don't get the right policies in place and ahead of the game. And so I think that's one thing where whoever is president in January of 2021, both trying to make sure support lasts as long as the economy needs it and trying to make sure the state and local governments don't undermine the recovery going forward. Those are going to be two real tests for whoever is president at that point.
0: You mentioned, Jay, the political calendar versus the economic data. Donald Trump keeps talking about a rebound in the third quarter of the year and a very strong year next year. And, of course, that would suit him politically perfectly if there was a rebound in the third quarter. It would boost his re-election chances come November. What's your own take? When do you anticipate that we will start to see the shoots of recovery and some sort of a rebound?
1: Well, I think um, at some point you'll see rebound frankly, fairly soon in terms of growth rates. And I think it's just important for people to always remember this, that, you know, if you lose 20 million jobs and then you gain a million jobs, a million job gain in a month is kind of a historic gain in the United States. That would be fantastic. But coming off losing 20 million, you're still in a very bad economy. That's going to be one of the real challenges for kind of sober economic analysts looking at what's going on um, is, I think. Politicians are, are going to have a lot of ability to kind of spin data and say, we just had record job growth. It's like, well, it's record job growth off a really ter- terrible drop. We will be less shut down this summer than we were in the second quarter. And so the, the kind of the third quarter will certainly look better than the second quarter, or we hope. The only thing that really could hold all that back is if the public health measures fail. And I think that's where sometimes you see a kind of people posing a tension between public health and the economy and saying, you have to choose one or the other. I think if there is a real strong rebound in the virus in the United States, that is the thing that will really destroy the economy. If, if we have to go back into lockdown again, if or even if there's no lockdown, but if people just don't feel comfortable leaving their homes and doing the things they need to do for the economy to have its normal course of activity, Uh, I think you could see it fall back. So I think that the question of what the economy will do is really a question about where we are in public health.
0: So we're going to hear a bit now about what it's like to be a business on the ground here in the US in the midst of this COVID-19 economic crash We're joined on the line by Nia O'Donovan from Cork, no relation She is the general manager of Daniel O'Connell's Irish Bar and Restaurant in Alexandria, Virginia, not far from Washington DC where I am Nia, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast I suppose, first off Neave, talk us through what was that moment like where you realised that at least for now the business was gone the staff were gone, you had to put up the shutters and it was all over and everything had to be parked at least for a period of time. What did that feel like personally?
3: To be honest with you, um, sheer disbelief. Just, you know, when you're you're standing there at St. Patrick's Day, so you can picture it, it's our busiest day of the year. Um, the run-up to St. Patrick's Day Festival, we had just had the parade the weekend before and March 17th, I'm standing in the restaurant and I literally have... You know, I'm standing there going, I have to close the doors and I have to say goodbye to my staff and I have to say goodbye to my kitchen staff and I have to say goodbye to the patrons. And it was just sheer disbelief of, is this really happening?
4: And what position are you in now, Neve? Are you back open? Were you able to rehire the staff again?
3: Thankfully, phase one, as I would call it um, for O'Connell's, is I was able to offer people back their jobs and again, though, it is a tricky scenario in the sense where you have a lot of people who are genuinely scared. You know, I have phone calls from my staff going, OK, of this is great. Thank you for giving me my job back. But I have aging parents at home. I'm afraid to go into the restaurant in case I come in contact with COVID-19 and bring it back to my home. So there's so many different layered, you know, aspects and complications to the reopening process. Um So we're doing delivery and takeout on the weekends and we are going to start extending that this week. But being quite honest with you, it really is more of a symbol, right, of strength to the community of, hey, like we're, we're open, but you're not you're not you're not doing it to make money. If you're looking at what your income was or what your takeout over an average weekend was and then you're. You're excited because you've you've sold 2,000 worth of fish and chips and shepherd's pie and, you know what I mean, bottles of wine. It just doesn't equate, you know, kind of thing. So it really is more of a symbol of unity.
4: Obviously, people are eager to get things back up and running again close to what they once were. It is mm-hmm. an election year as well. Do you think um, mm-hmm. people will put their trust in Donald Trump and his leadership during this time as a businessman and a CEO to get the country back up and running.
3: Politics, of course, especially in our area here, is everyone's favourite subject, right? Everyone has an opinion. Everyone Mm -hmm. has a political opinion. Everyone loves to criticise every administration. I mean, there's no question about it. I'm here 18 years this August, I'm in the States. And it's like everyone's favourite pastime. If President Barack Obama was in office the exact same conversation would we'll be having. You know what I mean, everyone just loves to tear down the administration and I actually do feel feel for the man because he doesn't have the answers. You know what I mean, nobody has the answers. So he is I'm guessing obviously, you know, leaning on his administration, leaning on the economists who are helping him to come out with some kind of a program to come out with some kind of a package. The country needs help. There's there's no question about it, but for all the controversy that is Donald Trump, I have to say, as I said, you know, in one sense, thankfully he does come from a business background because he does understand the worries, the the, the pressures, the the restraints that we're all under. If there's a if there's a positive to take from it, at least at least we can take it that he, he does understand where the where the Americans are worried right now. That's great news. All right, no problem. Thanks. Thanks. See you, Thanks so much. Right, bye. 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 Bye bye. Cheers.
0: Thanks. Bye. Bye bye, bye. bye.
4: So, Brian, holiday time next week for you anyways. It is Memorial Day.
0: Memorial Day, that's right. So we don't get a May bank holiday weekend at the start of May like you do in Ireland. It's Memorial Day, which is at the end of May. And Memorial Day traditionally is about honouring members of the U.S. military who died in service. And... It's a nice holiday because it traditionally marks the start of the summer season and it's one of those big, outdoorsy, almost 4th of July-esque holidays where you're supposed to go out and go to the beach and there's parades and there's uh, barbecues outside and that kind of thing. But of not course anything anymore. big and public, nope, not going to happen. A lot of um, states and cities have announced that the beaches will be open next weekend for Memorial Day weekend. Mm-hmm. But New York City, which has some beaches, has said it will not be reopening its beaches no great great surprise there, I suppose, because as we all know, New York very much remaining the epicentre of the COVID-19 outbreak here in the US.
4: Absolutely. Well, listen, I'll chat to you next week anyways, and enjoy your little holiday time.
0: Thanks, Jackie. Talk to you next week.